Last Thursday, 45 Israelis were killed and countless more injured in a tragic accident at Mount Moron in northern Israel, where thousands of Israelis had gathered to celebrate Lagba Omer. Every human life is precious, but a single event that takes the lives of 45 people from a population of only 9.3 million is catastrophic in the life of a nation. We had recorded a podcast episode while I was in Israel, which was before this tragedy. It's an episode that tries to capture life in post-corona Israel. We were scheduled to post it last Friday, but we held off given events. Alan and I spoke to family and friends in Israel in the past few days, and we decided to release the episode after Israel's National Day of Mourning. So that's what we're doing. It's an episode on what we can learn from post-corona Israel about what's coming our way, based on conversations I had there around Israel's Independence Day. Welcome to Post-Corona, where we try to understand COVID-19's lasting impact on the economy, culture, and geopolitics. I'm Dan Sino. Today we're doing something different. After 15 months of avoiding business travel, last week I boarded a plane to attend meetings in Israel. When I landed, it felt more like I boarded a DeLorean and time-traveled ahead to the era of post-corona, a land far, far away. I arrived here on April 15th, the 73rd anniversary of Israel's Declaration of Independence, and the energy was electrifying. The streets were bustling, the restaurants packed, and the traffic insane. With 85% of Israelis, 16 and older, inoculated, and with fewer than 100 daily infections and hospitals emptying out, it was clear that as far as Israelis are concerned, the pandemic is just another chapter in history. Life in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem felt like a movie trailer for the rest of the world, coming soon to a theater near you. I wanted to capture this intangible energy and bring it to your ears. So I called up Thule, a Tel Aviv sound engineer and a friend of ours who usually works on Israel's leading films and television shows. He joined me for an afternoon of conversations in the heart of Tel Aviv's bustling streets. I visited with Yonatan Sagiv, a Tel Aviv native, a PhD in literature, and a novelist who has written three popular Hebrew-language detective novels. I then met with Yara Kedar, a fashion historian and curator who is now working on her doctorate at Hebrew University. I wrapped up the day with my old pal Donna Stern, who is managing director of Yes Studios. These conversations paint a picture of life in post-pandemic Israel, a picture that could be our reality in a few months. But we start with Amit Aronson, a well-known restaurant critic in Israel. Amit's a television journalist, blogger, and writer. I usually check in with Amit when I'm in Israel, always guaranteed a good meal, a great story, and a lesson in history. So we may begin. Okay, I'm rolling. This is Post Corona. Amit. What's up? I didn't recognize you with your mask off. That's, <laughs> that's what people say here now. How are you? Cool, Sababa. I didn't wait for you by the table because you have to catch a line here. You have to, to queue. And you got to strike when there's an opening. Exactly. By the way, they told me I got here I got here on Thursday, so I got here on Yom Hatzmaut. And people said that on Sunday there's going to be no more mask requirements. Outside. Right. Okay, so tell me where we are. We're at the Hakosim, yeah. which uh, 
In the area? What's the area? It's really the heart of uh, urban uh, Tel Aviv in a falafel place. But a falafel place really like no other. And uh, this place... Like the cathedral of falafel. More than that. I always say Hakosem means the magician. Now I say that he's a magician because it's the only line in Israel that's actually a line and not a circle. You can see people queuing for a falafel. And now it's not something that you have to, you know, it's not rare. There are on the street alone, there are maybe 10 falafel joints and none of them has a line. Shalom. What are you having? You go first, you go first. I, I, need, I need to think, this is stressful. There's too much I want here. I'll go for a... I want a shawarma. Yeah. pita. Shawarma, yeah, shawarma. Let's do a... So I'll take sabich and he'll take shawarma. See how many cooks? And that's the man with the plan. That's Ariel, Ari, Kakosem. How, how much did you miss this? I missed it a lot. Um, I think it was a very, for me it was a very hard time, uh, spirit, spirit, spiritually. Not to I see know. smiles, not to see people. When did you close? In the 14th of March. It was Friday, at 4 o'clock we closed the place. And you didn't reopen in the slot that was in the middle, right? Because there was a time in the middle around... In uh, the first uh, in the first episode, yeah. <laughs> in the first episode, uh, like everybody, the first week I was in shock. And after I said, like everybody, okay, we have vacation, once in a lifetime, let's go to the beach, yeah. let's surf. I did it. The second time, I started to understand it's okay, it was nice to be, in, to be in two months in the beach, but we have to do something. And then we start, like everybody, to, um, to make small deliveries, we learned how to do it good, it, it took time. We changed the delivery, you don't get it in a pizza like now, so you can build it by yourself. But you have to understand, he's the exception in what he did, because many places started doing deliveries, so they would take the pita, they would wrap it somehow, and they would send it to you, and you would get this sponge mixture of, you know, whatever you were supposed to eat initially. Arik, because he's the perfectionist that he is, decided he's not willing to do it because it, it doesn't live up to his standards. And then he started developing, you know, how can I kind of, uh, I don't know, to reenact the Hakosem experience at home. He has his own music playlist that you get on a piece of QR code and you get the music that you hear when you're here, you can listen to it at home. I believe that uh, food is not only about the, the ingredients, it's about a full experience. Yeah. So I try to do as much as I can uh, also culinary, also in uh, the, the, the way it's come to you and the, the atmosphere is, is the bag and the music to give you a little bit of me, of us, also at home, so the bite will be uh, tastier. So look, here, you want to walk? Let's yeah, walk and talk. Go to it, I will... You'll come back? I, yes, in a few minutes, yes, I'm okay. coming to you. So, is this a typical day? This is slower than a typical day, actually. You're kidding me. <laughs> no, no, I'm not kidding you. Because if this were, if this were New York, yeah people would think you're crazy. This many people, no masks, in one space. Oh, this. I was very strict, you know, going through COVID. I mean, I really barely met people. I canceled all my work meetings, everything. But now there are really very, very little cases in Tel Aviv. Uh, and in general, I mean, the number of new cases in Israel yesterday was like less than 100. What struck me since I've been here is since the border is basically sealed, to almost every non-Israeli. Mm -hmm. So so it's only Israelis here. Yes. So it's a combination of no tourists, so I hear very little, I've heard very little English since I've been here. strange in Tel Aviv. Especially this time of year, as you start April, May, June, mm -hmm. you start to hear English everywhere, same in Jerusalem. So I'm hearing no English, mm -hmm. and it seems that 
because Israelis aren't really leaving. They aren't. But they're bursting at the seams to get out because they've been locked up. You feel it everywhere. Israelis were, I mean, we were locked down for so long and you see it in traffic, you see it in the restaurants, you see it in the, now that it was, you know, Passover and Yom Ha'atzmanut and all that. All, all the parks were filled to the brim with people. Traffic jams were, there was a day where I, uh, they, they said on the news it was the worst traffic jams in the history of Sunday. Israel. Sunday? Something like that. Yeah, Somewhere around, I was trying to get around Tel Aviv on Sunday. People did drives that usually take an hour and a half in five and a half hours. It's like driving from, I'd say, I mean, if you drive, let's say, from New York to Philly, it usually takes you, I don't know, two, two hours, hours, right? So think of that, and that'll take you seven. I mean... So why? What's happening? Just, you know, think of the champagne bottle that you shake for a long time, and then you open it. That's what happened. We're very alive. We're always very alive. And when you put everybody in this pressure tank of not being able to meet one another, not being able to party, not being able to fly, not being able to eat at restaurants, and then instantly you kind of remove the cork, it's just, you know, it sprays everywhere. I, I, I didn't think it would be so, um, I didn't think it would be so visible, you know, how much people missed everything. I mean, try to get a table at a good restaurant in Tel Aviv now, it's a month ahead. It used to be a week, and now it's a month. Did this place get crazy, Arik? Did this did things start getting busy gradually, or was it like once you were open, it was instant? It was crazy. The line was until like uh, one kilometer. When we opened, people not only was missing us, they was missing to go out. But it was instant. It wasn't. It wasn't gradual. Tel Aviv became picnic city. It was amazing. You see, uh, you know, Dizengoff Square. Yeah. It was the best party in town during the time when you could not sit inside at restaurants, but you could take food on delivery or on takeouts. People put uh, milk boxes, milk like cartons, this. yeah, or beer beer boxes all over the place so as improvised tables. Everything was full, all the city was full. All and the, city. the entire city, people sat on benches and ate from cardboard uh, yeah. boxes and with, you know, with the, the disposable utensils. The, the government said that we can't uh, sit on the table, so I ordered 200 uh, uh, beer boxes. <laughs> so it was and all and all just set them up right here? All over, until over there. So that's like a couple Until blocks there, away. Yes, yes. So that that's real innovation. That's startup nation. Yes, so you nice. so you set up beer boxes. Yes. And how many people did you have sitting at any given time? Two hundred people. No, it was, it was all the streets. Even though there was a rule about not sitting yes. at tables. It's outside. It's, hey. By the way, uh, in the third uh, time that we closed, uh, Tel Aviv City, the the mayor. They put out the boxes. They put well. the boxes of Tel Aviv City that you can see. So that they told you. If you was in table, I would give you a ticket, but, but we can box, take our it's boxes, fine. it's okay, That's yes. Awesome. Let me ask you one last question before you go. Does it feel to you that Israel, because right now the whole, the Western world is a few months behind Israel on reopening, reopening like this. This feels like another world to me. This is like getting in a time machine and going forward. Or do you just feel like we're getting back to life? Both. Both of them. You feel that you was lucky. Yeah. You feel that uh, uh, you can say God was with us and he gave us to be uh, only nine, uh, nine million people that can close the gates and can maybe do something. Yeah. Israeli doctors 
We are preparing for war. We are preparing for trauma. Well, this is partly why Israeli entrepreneurs and startups are so successful. Because Israeli entrepreneurs and startups live in a constant state of chaos. So if you're trying to build a company, that's a pretty good mindset to have. And I feel like the restaurant's got a taste of that. Yeah. Right. I'm going to prepare okay. a few uh, pizzas. Thank go, you for go, coming. Go. Thank you. So is that the mood of all these guys running restaurants? Is sort of there are not one and not five and not ten restaurateurs that I know that are actually better off now than they were before the crisis. They won't tell you it. They won't tell it on record, but. It is like that because... They are better off? A little bit better off, yes. I mean, think of this place, for example. This place, which fed, let's say, I'm guessing around 1,200 people or 1,500 people on average on a day before. He still does that, but now he has about, I don't know, 500 extra deliveries going out every day. So the investment he had to put in building his, uh, his delivery infrastructure was quite low. So let's say he added 30% to the number of people he feeds on a day. That's 30% more money, you know? And, and COVID forced him to, to invest in that, yes. in the delivery in the infrastructure beginning. sooner than he would have. By the way, you're seeing that with a lot of retail in the U.S., which a lot of retail said, at some, at some point delivery. we have to get to our e-commerce strategy, or at some point we have to get to a delivery strategy. And COVID happened and then lockdowns happened and they instantly... Of course, I saw it, I felt it, my wife works at Wix. Mm -hmm. So the number of places that opened retail, like uh, like e-commerce websites, it was ridiculous during this year. So there's a certain level of energy that is through the roof, and you can see it here. Is this a burst, a spike in activity post-corona, or is this the new normal? It'll be interesting to come here in six months, I guess, to see after the summer what happens. I'm hoping that it will remain on this level because even if us, the Israelis, will kind of you know go back to our less uh, energized mode, the tourists will come back. That's right. what I'm praying. I was here on, I landed here on Yom Hatzmut. Mm -hmm. Someone said to me that Yom Hatzmut, Israel's Independence Day, it felt a little bit like Israel's day, formal declaration of independence from COVID. I agree. Why was that day so important? I think it was the first time that it was okay to party. Really, you didn't need to hide anymore because during the last year there were, you know, underground parties going around and families getting together on holidays and you know, you had people thinking, "Oh, I had friends over, but I won't post the picture on Instagram because then they'll see I had someone at my house." And then on Yom Ha'atzmaut, Yom Ha'atzmaut is like the biggest party of the year. Thank you, Amit. Pleasure this was awesome. Always. I got to run. Thank you for doing this. Thank you very much. Ari kept bringing the plates of shawarma, falafel, and sabich. He was not terribly interested in whether I was stuffed or that I had to get to my next meeting. Tuli and I walked a few blocks over to Habima, which is the pedestrian square and park around Tel Aviv's main live theater auditorium. We grabbed a park bench to sit down with novelist Yonatan Sagiv. Yonatan is a PhD in literature. He has written three popular Hebrew language detective novels. A Tel Aviv native, Yonatan had been living in the UK for the past decade, teaching modern Hebrew literature at the University of London. But he and his partner, whose tech job had originally brought them to the UK, uprooted their diaspora lives to move back to Israel during the pandemic. So how typical is this 
Well, you know, a year and a half ago, I would say that this is extremely typical because what we're seeing here, which is amazing, I think we're seeing faces, right? Like a lot of people walking around, talking and sitting, and their faces are exposed. <laughs> no masks. Yeah, no masks. I mean, the way that we're seeing people now, again, engaging and being in close contact, you know, it's only happening in the last few months since the vaccinations. So, and I think we're all still feeling like very thrilled and very blessed right. that we can walk around like this. So where are we? So we're at the square of the National Theater of Israel, Habima, which is this um, big, beautiful square with a garden and flowers and running water. And this has been kind of like one of the centers to hang around and be together during the COVID. Sitting down in outdoor spaces, um, taking takeouts and drinks. <laughs> There's something so Israeli about that, which is Israelis feel the constant need to be with other people. So it was yeah. like, we need to figure out, we have to be innovative in figuring out how we're gonna be with each other. And if it's pulling out beer boxes and sitting in front of park benches to make a makeshift dinner table, we'll do it. Oh, definitely. Innovative and also in a way, informal and disobedient. Cause I think, you know, for me, uh, I mean, I've been living in London for the past 10 years. Right. So when I came here um, after seven months of not seeing my family and, you know, uh, living during the first lockdown in London, I was shocked to come to Israel. I mean, the mentality here with the pandemic was completely different from London, you know? And I don't know if it's because of the culture or because of the way the pandemic progressed in the different countries. In London, the pandemic hit and hit hard. So when I came from London, it was very obvious to me that the corona is a serious threat. And also British people are more, um, Formal, they keep their distance, they're more obedient of rules and laws. And when I came here, it was a very, very different situation. Because Israelis, like you said, are a very physical culture, people were shocked that I'm not willing to hug. I mean, we're talking June, the pandemic is all around the globe, you know. I mean, the graphs are going up. And people here are thinking that if I do not hug, I'm a crazy person who is people here hysterical. Just, for, for our listeners, they may not understand this. When you meet an Israeli, within minutes, you're, yeah. your arms around them, you're hugging, you're, you know, it's, it's, it's just a very physical Yeah, it's a very physical, touchy-feely, and everybody is called honey or sweaty, and you hug and you kiss instantly. And it was kind of like, like this throughout, in a way, the pandemic, even in the third wave, even when Israel did experience for the first time, I, I feel, with the variants, this, uh, the real threat of COVID, people still kept, like we said, you know. Being affectionate. And they being affectionate. And they couldn't, they couldn't comprehend how, but I, I can't be affectionate. I mean, I'll, I'll comply yeah. with all your rules, but yeah. I, I still need to be affectionate. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and even, I mean, you comply with the rules, but not exactly. Because you would still, you would still come and visit your parents. You would still be with them sometimes yeah. in their own house. And you would still hug them and Corona be damned, you know? Right. So... So you were living in London, as you said. Yeah. So wh why did you move to London? So I have been away from Israel for the past almost 15 years. First, I was in New York living for six years, doing my PhD in NYU in Jewish studies. Then I moved to London because my partner got a job. Why did you come back? 
I, I, it sounds kitsch, and I, and I wouldn't have said that two years ago, but I think what the corona highlighted for me and for a lot of, a lot of people out there, I kind of call it now uh, the return of the expats, is the need to be close, the need to be close so to your So all culture. these Israelis, because in the tech world, there's often this criticism that with Israel you have all this brain drain, all these yeah. talented tech people leaving to take tech jobs in the West. And I always described it more as it's less of brain drain than brain circulation. <laughs> that that Israelis, they've, you know, wanderlust. They want to wander and go work in different parts of the world, but they ultimately, most of them, ultimately may take some longer than others, but they ultimately wind up back here. And by the way, when they do come back here, they bring with them a lot of experience and know-how and working in other companies and uh, working in the West. But it seems that COVID has accelerated that for a lot of Israelis. There's a lot of Israelis scattered all over the world, and then there was like an ingathering of the exile. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree with your observation that first thing, it always happened. I think Israelis travel a lot, they work a lot abroad, and then for some it will take five years, for some it will take 10 years, at the end they will come back. But I think, yeah, I think COVID and the corona really accelerated that process. And especially when I came back here in November, you know, there was all that talk about, right, um, so the city is dead, right, all around the world, cities are dead, people want to go to, back to the suburbs, they want greenery, and Airbnb is gonna, you know, <laughs> become to dust. And I can tell you that when I came back to Tel Aviv in November, you couldn't find an apartment here. And Airbnb, the prices skyrocketed, rents skyrocketed, because so many expats returned to Israel. They wanted to be with their families. They wanted to come back to their homeland where, where they're feeling, you know, safe and intimate, and they know the, the workings around. And it really accelerated the process. I don't know if it's here to stay. That's my question. I am struck, and this is anecdotal, by the number of tech entrepreneurs that I know who built businesses that required them to live abroad. So they started tech companies in Israel and all the engineering know-how was in Israel. They said, but if we want to go do sales and marketing, we've got to go set up an office in the U.S. If we want to go do business development, we've got to go do it in the U.S. And so they would set up operations in the U.S., keep, up, keep a headquarters here, set up operations in the U.S., and then the CEO or the co-founders would move abroad to the U.S. or to London. And I'm struck by how many of them now are moving back and they're saying they're moving back for good. Sure. Why? Because they said the pandemic, the lockdowns, Prove that it's easier to work virtually than we. It's easier to work virtually than we thought, and that's not going to change. It's not to say we all want to permanently work virtually, but but some kind of hybrid living where we're in person with the people we have to interact with in business around the world, and we also can do a lot of it virtually means it gives us more flexibility to live where we want to live, not where the business is. We can live where we want to live, and if we can live where we want to live and we're raising families, we want to be living in a place that's more consistent with our values, where we feel more at home, where there's more communal connections, more familial connections. And Israel is that for many of these Israeli entrepreneurs. So they say, look, I can run my tech company for, and be a global company from Tel Aviv or from Jerusalem and be, and be connected globally in a way I never could have imagined because the pandemic showed me I could be connected globally even during a pandemic. And that'll continue. And the tech tools are, you know, are there to, to enable that. 
and I can raise my family here. Yeah. One thing that I see now in post-corona Israel is how quickly things bounce back. I mean, it's only been a few months since the vaccinations have started to happen. And, you know, people already are almost not talking about the corona. People are, again, coughing and not being hysterical. People are sitting in coffee shops, restaurants, going to clubs, going to concerts, and... By the way, the day I got here, I was stunned. In downtown Tel Aviv, it's something I just haven't seen. I saw lines around the block of young people, like, you know, 18, 19, 20 lining up to get into clubs. Like exactly. the, the velvet rope line's back. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. never, I, I'd forgotten about the velvet rope line exactly. during Corona. And then you see lines of people and they're packed together. I'm thinking, these people, what are they doing? Exactly. And, they're, and they're lining up to get into a tiny place where yeah. they're gonna be on top of each other. Yeah, yeah, they're packed. And that's why I'm saying this because, you know, I read, I still read now because, you know, the world is not like this. I read like articles in The Guardian and The New York Times. Will we ever go back to restaurants? And I'm like, yes, trust me, you will. And the reason I'm saying this is because I think people immigrate and move around for different reasons. And some will decide to move again. And we will also see, of course, like new generations of young people that just want to go out there to the world and explore. So I think we'll, we'll still see again a very globalized world with a lot of movement. Um, again, I think I really yeah. do not know. You're a fiction writer. Yes. What kind of literature do you think will come out of this period? The, 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 not the period we're in this moment, but the COVID, the corona yeah. period, this, this, you know, 15, 16 months of lockdown, of human catastrophe globally, of shared experience, and that I, I can't think of anything in my lifetime where there's something going on in the world that literally affected everyone, that almost everybody was waking up every day and at some point thinking about the same thing that everyone around the world was thinking about. How will that manifest itself in, in literature? Yeah, it is so difficult to know because I think, I think we all have this, in a way, um, double expectation. On the one hand, you kind of like, you want to have the vaccines and you want to get it over with. And then you don't want to write about it because you feel you've been submerged in it for so long that you kind of want to imagine that life will just bounce back and you will write your literature and your, I'm also writing for TV now, and you don't wanna imagine writing again like people with masks and people not shaking hands. You wanna see your right fifth season of Billions and you wanna see, see them sitting down in the office and just talking about stocks. You don't wanna see them talking in Zoom. Right. But on the other hand, like you said, this is such, such an event with such huge magnitude, such a, a, a break in our, in our shared experience that I think we won't be able to, to pass it. So first I envision a, a, a really big wave of bad sci-fi and fantasy, um, speaking about uh, maybe bad vaccinations that will lead to like disease and mutations, um, conspiracy of this conglomerates, you know, uh, spreading viruses or- I, I'm, I'm, waiting, I, human I'm waiting for the series on the, the China versus U.S. intelligence community exactly. race race to a vaccine. Yes, exactly. We're going to have a lot of a maybe, thrillers. Exactly, Netflix shows kind of right. like documenting how it all um, was laid down. But then I think also less jokingly, but I, I do think it will happen. Yeah. Uh, I think we'll see a lot of literary works dealing with isolation, dealing with mental problems. 
um, that arised from from isolation. And I think the the other spectrum of that would be a lot of narrative talking about reconnection and about coming home and coming back to your family and how we kind of like reestablishing these like familial and human bonds after such a, a break and after such an earthquake has happened to us. There's very little written about the Spanish flu period. Very little. I keep thinking about that. You have a theory on why? Maybe that's the reason why we all forgot in a way about the Spanish flu, you know? I think maybe there is a chance that we will kind of view this if the vaccinations will work, hopefully. And if, as in Israel and as I think in a few other countries are happening now, we will look back at it as sort of this crazy period of a limbo that we were all suspended for a year and a half, but then life kind of like returned. Maybe we will actually, there is a chance that we will try to avoid it in our literary works and in our creative work and just like plunge back into the world, rushing back to us. Do you, do you think there's something unique? You say everyone here is physically affectionate. Do you also think there, there's something very communal about the place? People want to be not just physically, you know, hugging, and but just it's a place that people are out and about, you know, with each other. Uh, I think there's so many reasons for that. You know, I think I think Jewish society, uh, even before Israel, I mean, J Jewish diaspora has always been organized in uh, in small communities, um, and with the emphasis of uh, of charity and community. So people really. Um, huddled together in a way. There were also, um, of course, historical and, and societal uh, reasons for it, like anti-Semitism and ghettos. But So I think we're talking from the beginning about a community that really puts an emphasis about togetherness and being close to one another. Um, and then it's a small country uh, that feels that it's always at war with its outside enemies. So Israel for good reasons and for bad reasons, it's sort of like a pressure cooker. So everybody's together, everybody's really close to one another, and it translates to, to, to like the, the physical atmosphere and also to, to, to the mental um, uh, perception of it. So yeah, people are not willing to abandon um, closeness. And then when they've been told they can't be close to one another, and then they're told, now it's okay to be close with one another. It's like shaking up a Coke can and cranking it open. That's what I see around yeah, here. No, amazing imagery. Every, okay. Everywhere I look, it's like just people. I was at a restaurant the other night in Tel Aviv in Carmel Market, M25, oh. and I was watching people, and they they just kept hugging each other throughout the night. <laughs> like like it's one thing they hugged each other when they arrived. Oh, it's so great to see. You. And then they hug again, and they hug, and they're just. <laughs> that is a great metaphor, and I think it's exactly like that. So people are, I mean, Tel Aviv is exploding right now. You can feel the vibrations in the air, and people are hugging constantly. People are traveling throughout the country. You can't get a booking in a restaurant. You can't get a booking in a hotel. Um, I mean, and the city in the streets, it's, it's packed. And I think this is a very special moment because you still remember kind of like the trauma of the past few months and of not being able to do that fully in the way you wanted. 
And so you're still literally embracing the possibility of embracing. And that's why I think Tel Aviv and Israel in general now is in such a close contact with, with its people. All right, this is great. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for having great. me. It was starting to get pretty hot, typical for a late April afternoon in Tel Aviv. Tuli and I wandered over to the Montefiore Hotel, a boutique spot just west of Allenby Street, to meet fashion historian and curator Yara Kedar. Yara is now working on her doctorate at Hebrew University. She moved her family back to Israel right before the pandemic. So Yara. Yes. Yara. <laughs> Where are we? Uh, we are at Hotel Montefiore, yeah. and it's... Beautiful. I think it's it's actually my favorite place in in Tel Aviv. Why? I love, I love the palm trees and the you know leather sofas and it's always busy, no matter what time you you come here. Yeah. Um, you know there are always people sitting there and and drinking no matter what time of day it is. The fashionable crowd would be here, businessmen and women, um, but also people that are celebrating because it's like a fancy right. place. Okay, so you live in Tel Aviv? Yes. But you lived in the New York? Yes, I, I lived in New York until December 2019. We spent eight magnificent years there. Where in New York? Uh, the Lower East Side. So you were in New York. New York's a fabulous place to be. It is. You spent eight years there. Uh-huh. What brought you back here? In New York, I started curating exhibitions, both in New York and in Israel. And after a while, I started also lecturing on fashion and art. I started traveling back and forth all the time, and I was away from home. I was away from my family. Your family, which was in New York? Yes. No matter where I was, I was away from my family. When I was there, I was far from my family here in Israel, and when I was in Israel, I wasn't with my child and my husband. Um, and it started to take a toll, and, and it became increasingly harder to do. And initially, we just said, we're going to take a year off, go to Israel, spend the year there, and then decide what's, what's going to happen. But our initial plan was to go back to New York after a year. And it was December 2019, and then, you know, the world changed. Yeah. Little did you know at that point what was going on in, in Wuhan. And in terms of the fashion industry, what changed during the pandemic? There's a, a thing in Zoom that you start staring at yourself. <laughs> you start looking at yourself and you start noticing things, how your hair looks, your glasses, things that you never, you've never seen before, earrings. Um, nail polish, all these things became really important. In terms of personal engagement with people, I mean, it feels to me it was the end of small talk. Hopefully we're going to resume to small talk, but it was the end of small talk because when I think of how much small talk there is around the water cooler, no less, or just in the hallway at the office, or when you start a meeting and you walk into a meeting with five people and you're waiting for everyone to get there and there's chit chat, you know, while you're, you talk to this person, you talk to this person before the meeting commences, and Zoom work life was just too efficient because it was just like the meeting starts at four, screens go on, four, we're on. There's no small talk. There's no, oh, what train did you take to get here for this meeting? Oh, what's the weather supposed to, oh, did you see this film? You know, it's just, you go right in it. It's gonna be weird for there to be a resumption of small talk. Hmm. 
That's a really interesting question. I have to say that I think Israel in general, there's this culture of like going back um, really quickly to the way everything was. And I feel that it's, it's, it's and, and talking to friends from New York, for example, I think it's like a unique thing that's going here. And maybe it has a lot to do with our history of, you know, needing to endure and move on and just forget everything that just happened. Give me examples in history. That's a really interesting point. I remember growing up as a teenager in Tel Aviv and there were bombings and we used to go out after every bombing. Like so, we would so go, what years? Just during the second it's intifada? It's like the end of the 90s. Like the Sparrow bombing in Jerusalem, yeah. the Delphi. Are you talking about like coffee shops and bars and buses being bombed? Yes. It's okay. Yes. So during during a wave of yeah ninety of I would say ninety six seven eight um, even later than that and then um, I was no longer a teenager I was like nineteen twenty um, but when when there were terror attacks we would go out we would go out to like so there'd be news of a terror attack and the country would be frozen and yet there was a quick the mindset was we got to get back to life. Yes. We got to get back to our routine. Let's go, get out. Go dance. Go do something that has nothing to do with it. Otherwise, you're you're gonna sink in the situation and fear, I would say. And this was, at least for me, it was a major part of growing up in Israel. You were you were scared of being attacked, and um, so I think escapism is a major part of living here and being able to absorb everything around you, but then being able to cut and then switch to a completely different setting, a completely different atmosphere, being somewhere else. So do you think that's a uniquely Israeli cultural mindset? I suspect so. Given, given the frequency and volume of yes. instability that you just quickly have to, in the, in the wake of all the stability, get some stability. Exactly. And, and going back as quickly as possible to what was familiar, what felt like normalcy before. We went to the movies this week and it was packed. You were next to human beings? Yes. Wow, bold. Who were crying and laughing. Um, what and, movie? Um, it was To Take a Wife with Onitel Kabetz. It was, um, Onitel Kabetz was um, a cultural heroine of Israel, and she passed away five years ago, and her brother arranged a special screening of um, one of their films that she directed, and she is the protagonist of the film, and we went to see a movie in the theater. It was amazing. And then I texted a friend from New York that we, we are in the movies, and he said, you know, it's going to take a while for New Yorkers to do that. I agree. He, and he said, we're not like you. So for, for, I think, Americans watching what's happening here, it's, you know, I felt like I was getting in a DeLorean and going forward in time, and I'm going to come back to New York and try to tell people what's waiting for us. I went five months ahead, guys, and now I'm back. Let me tell you what it's like. What, would you, what do you tell people? I think predicting the future became almost impossible. And we always relied on being able to say, you know, this will pass, this will, you know, this will fade. And now we really don't know. It was such a surprising 
turn of events that I think everyone are more cautious about making plans for the future. I do think that it's easier for Israelis who don't like to make long-term plans anyway. <laughs> for Israelis, I think it feels more natural to... Why don't Israelis like to make long-term plans? Because you never know what, you know, you never know what's coming. A friend of mine the other day, his daughter just got engaged. And I said, oh, when's the wedding? Is it next year? Is it... He says, I was thinking six weeks. Mm-hmm. And I was like, or two months, whatever it was. Yeah. And I said, what? He says, first of all, Israelis do short engagements anyways to begin with. True. And then COVID shrunk them even more <laughs> for this exact reason. Because we just don't know if there's going to be another variant. Yeah. You just don't know. So we're loose now. We're free. We, we've had our Independence Day, literally and figuratively. We're, we're free of Corona. Mm-hmm. If my daughter wants to get married, get married now. It's true. I think the idea of celebrating like there's no tomorrow is literally the idea behind many of the celebrations here. All right, well, thank you for doing this. So now I'm This was great. My um, pleasure. It's about 5 p.m., and the tree-lined pedestrian and bike lane strip in the middle of Rothschild Avenue in the heart of Tel Aviv's tech and art scene is jammed. I met TV and film executive Donna Stern there for coffee in front of one of the kiosks in the middle of it all. According to The Hollywood Reporter... Donna has a knack for turning hyper-local shows like Fauda, On the Spectrum, and Stiso into international hits. Earlier in life, Donna lived everywhere from the U.S. and London to Singapore. In Israel, I feel like I hopped into a DeLorean and, like, time-traveled to post-corona. I talk about what post-corona may look like. I feel like I've traveled to it. I am actually describing It's funny you should use you know, the Back to the Future reference, because I literally use that. Remember that scene where Marty McFly finds the almanac? Yes. And then he kind of goes, okay, this is the way to make some money off this, right? It's kind of like that. So everybody I speak to, I kind of tell them, I can give you a glimpse into the future. We've never been able to do that before. So I feel like that's me right now. I'm here and I'm like, so I want this episode to just be talking to some people who live here in Tel Aviv who can describe what is, hopefully, God willing, coming our way, just like five or six months behind you guys. So first of all, where are we right now? Just So we're in the epicenter, I think, right? If you had to describe like Tel Aviv of yes. today. So we're on Rothschild, right in the center. I mean, we can see the National Theater from here. Yeah, I was there earlier um, today. Yeah, and then if we kind of could just continue down on Rothschild straight, 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 heading west, we'll just reach the beach. So it doesn't get more Tel Aviv than okay, that. So this is a pretty eclectic group of people. This is This is rush hour. So we have Young people going back and forth to work. We've got children on skateboards and scooters. We've yeah, got... The electric scooters everywhere. Traffic at a standstill. People running red lights all over the place. Right, but like at any moment, there's someone whizzing by on an electric scooter, which is terrifying. And we're sitting here on seats and a milk crate. Okay, so do you think this is like a thing now? The street, like, vibe? Like, look at there's blankets all over the place. It's like picnics everywhere. Everybody just wants to get outside. Okay. So you said the other night when I saw you, it's like when you're listening to a podcast and you increase the speed of the podcast to 1.5 or 2x. That's what life is like in Tel Aviv now. Everybody's living rapidly. It really is. It just feels like that, that everything is going at warp speed. It's like faster than it ever was. 
And if I had to describe it, you know, we pressed pause for a year and then we pressed play, but it was play at times, you know, one and a half. It's just everybody feels like they need to cram everything that they missed out on immediately. And we have no patience anyway here. We've always been kind of fast and, you know, and loose, uh, but now it's just like, we, we feel like we deserve it. Right. You know, we've spent a year locked indoors, spent no money thinking this was the end. And look, it's not, you know, the sun's still shining. Sky has not fallen and, you know, let's make up for lost time and let's do it quick. So, so you said to me that the, like Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Independence Day felt like the, the day, like independence, not only celebrating Israel's independence, but like independence from COVID. That's really when the masks came off. Oh my, it was crazy. I mean, independence, I've never seen anything like it. And usually, you know, the next day we'll have a barbecue. So kind of like 4th of July, right? Usually we get invited to one, maybe two, one and, you know, early and then. And that's the thing here, right? On, on Independence Day, that's what people do. They go to barbecues. Yeah. So during the day, we go to barbecues. The night before, we party, party. And it's a really interesting transition regardless between, you know, our Memorial Day, which is a real somber event. It's a real, you know, and, and the few hours kind of in between the two holidays is one of the unique times that you spend. And everything stops and people get very serious and somber and kind of locked up. And then as soon as, you know, that hour between 8 and 9, where there's like an official ceremony, and at 9.30, the fireworks go off. This year, it was just like people went off. But... It was just party, party, party. I had to drive one of my daughter's friends home. It was 3.20 in the morning. I could not move my car through the streets. And they didn't close the streets off. I, was, I would have been fine if there were just like, all right, whatever, a night of no traffic kind of thing. It was just people, you know, drunk, uh, happy, just right walking in the middle of the street you could not move traffic and this was 3:20 in the morning it just went on and on and on and yet since i've been here i hear very little english well there was none so you were if you know you don't mind me telling this I'm, i've been telling this since i saw you you're my curiosity you're like my one friend who Citizen, made it over the visitor number one it was you really tourist are. number one tourist number one and at the restaurant the other night i keep telling people like i'm so proud of the fact that you made it here but um, how the fact that they didn't have an English menu for you. And this is a restaurant, it's a market restaurant. It is in the market. So the, um, the kind yeah, of- the Curtis, Carmel market. The yeah. Carmel market. And usually they have a revolving menu, right? It changes every day depending on what's fresh and they just print it out. And you were sitting there and the waitress goes over and says, English, we don't have an English menu anymore. And this is a place where you would only, you know, your English and French are the background. And she called over some of the other guys and said, look at him. <laughs> He's like, He's a, he's a tourist. Oh, We've got a tourist. We've got a tourist. You're the first. So, uh, yeah. And, but, um, and so, and that's because... Oh, and by the way, just going back to the barbecue thing. So usually we'll have one or two. I think we had four invites. I mean, that's the double speed, right? People are just trying to find reasons to party, party. And do you think... Because in the U.S., it feels that even as we gradually open, reopen, it's going to be feel very incremental. This feels, there's nothing incremental about this. As you said, it's like double speed. So is that, is it that an Israeli thing? It went from zero to hundred right. in Is like, that an Israeli thing? I don't know, I don't know. We'll have to see, because I think we are kind of the first and some right. of the countries are actually going backwards versus going forward. And you right. certainly Europe is, is stuck right now. US seems to be the better of a lot. And I thought when we kind of, you know, and we had to doing what I do and, and producing and developing. You were always producing and developing for future. And we were writing things in like social distancing and shows. 
And yeah. So you were actually integrating into shows. Future shows that will be shot after COVID. And we thought, you know, people would still be, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't hug, they wouldn't kiss. They'd be like socially distant. You'd have to factor that in. That all went through the window. People are like hugging each other. Like they've never hugged before. Double kissing, triple kissing, whatever. But you say people have been saving money. Yeah, so I'm actually, and that's why I'm saying because I'm seeing people now just spend like there's no tomorrow. And to your question, you know, will this continue? It, it depends on if the economy holds up. And right now, people feel like they've been pent up. They've certainly not spent money. Um, they've had nothing to spend it on. They feel like they deserve it. You know, they've really suffered in the last year. Like people just want to spend them themselves. They want to splurge and indulge. I mean, you can't get a table in the city. Someone said to me earlier that it was interesting that throughout Israeli history, there's this bounce back from tragedy. You know, after a terrorist attack, people go out. Not only do they go out, but the place that was hit, the coffee shop or the bar, they try to reopen it as soon as possible. You Mindset. want a firm life. I think, I think we want a firm life. I think we want to make sure, you know, we're still living. I actually think it comes a lot from our history, like way back when, you know, after the Holocaust. And you saw that the displaced persons camp. I mean, that's the first example you kind of have of that, you know, after the Holocaust when right. the Jews had nowhere to go and were kind of stuck. And I think it's this history that we have of going through, you know, tremendous tragedy, but coming out on the other side and affirming life. And this boom that you're seeing, to your point, after every tragedy, war, um, terror attack is one where you know we don't we we don't get quiet and mournful we actually celebrate what we do have right you've been traveling around the country yeah for the first time in my life <laughs> pretty much since school so, so basically you're a traveler you are always traveling the globe suddenly you can't travel the globe so you're like i'm going to see parts of this tiny little country that I've never seen before. To give you context, I was probably traveling twice a month on average overseas before, this, the, pandemic. before the pandemic for work usually, but half work, you know, a little play. Right. Um, in the past year, I've gone abroad twice and I'm probably one of the few people that even managed to do that. So to me, it was getting, you know, it's been getting a little cabin fever. So places you went, you went to, you went to. I went to Dubai because you got to. So you went to Dubai and you went to go see Gal Gadot in Wonder Woman. With your kids in a movie theater in Dubai. The day it opened. And she was on the Burj Khalifa when we were there, you know, with a big advert like in Dubai on the tallest building in the world, you're seeing an Israeli actress play Wonder Woman. It was just, it was mind blowing. This was December. It was my first time in a theater. So, and you tell me where you've gone in the country, where you've traveled. So in the time, you know, we were kind of getting a little cabin fever. And now that there's, you can, hotels have opened, restaurants have opened, the roads have obviously opened. So that's the one unfortunate part of it, the traffic's back. Um, you can't travel with your kids because they're not vaccinated. A lot of the countries won't have us back. So we're trying to kind of re, re visit our own countries. So I've been taking these weekends with the kids to various places in the countries, which ironically they've never been to. You know, they've probably been to New York like five times, but they've never been to Nazareth, which is an hour and a half away. So we've been kind of using that, you know, yeah. to reacquaint ourselves. By the way, we're not the only people doing it. Like everybody's. I, I talk to people, they're like, everyone's going away. I mean. I have a friend who is a tour guide. Um, she speaks Italian and she, um, 
she takes, you know, usually Christians on pilgrimages and poor thing, you know, she hasn't worked in a year. And suddenly she's back working. And I said to her like, what are you working on? She's like, I'm taking all these Israelis on Christian pilgrimage tours. They've never given at the time of day. You know, she's never had an Israeli on any of her tours. And suddenly, you know, she's taking him to the Jordan River and telling him the, the history of Israel from a Christian perspective, because that's the tour she knows. So. Um, so one, just tell me a little bit about your TV and film life, producing television during the pandemic. She's going to be the first um, series we actually started started and ended production entirely during COVID. So we had a few shows that had stopped because during the first lockdown back in March, everything stopped. Nobody had any idea how to deal with it as far as a production level. And plus that was the law and we were just like, you know, trying to find ourselves. So it all stopped. Um, she, so we had a couple of series that went back just for extra days that they had to pick up. But that went back, I want to say very early July. It was... It was scary. It was scary for everyone. I, you know, part of our cast is a little elderly, and they were very fearful uh, about, you know, catching COVID. Ironically, I think I can share this because he's been very vocal. But Shulem Dovale Glikman was the number one hypochondriac that we had, and he wouldn't travel with anyone, you know, in the car. And he had his own room, and he didn't want anyone on set. Like he was very particular. He was sure he was going to get COVID from one of the younger actors. Thankfully, nobody got sick at all during the during the shoot then he went off um he did this film for hbo i believe it's in the czech republic he took a private plane um it's called oslo it's based on the play yeah it's for hbo i think steven spielberg is like producing it did he did he too he did too he got sick on a shoot for an hbo film in the czech republic had nothing to do with stiesel and everybody else is like okay? see we told you so is did you have, how did you do it on the set? Did you have everyone in a bubble? Yeah, so it, we, we asked people to be in a bubble. So we can't afford to put people up like in hotels and really sequester them from their families and friends. And plus they would never do it. Like if you ask an Israeli not to go back home for Shabbat where he's just down the road shooting, uh-uh, they're gonna go. So. Right, especially because like Israeli soldiers come home. Yeah, everybody goes home on Shabbat, right? You're not, you can't do that. So, um, so we basically had pods. And for the season, I think you can tell, too, if you kind of watch it closely, you can really tell there's, like, very two distinct, very storylines that never really cross over. So you minimize the, to the extent minimize that Minimize the, con the contacts between the actors and different pods. They all had, you know, separate rooms in which to rest. Usually they just have, like, one crew room. I mean, we're not fancy like they are, right, right, right. you know, in other countries where everybody gets their own caravan right. and their own right, restroom right, and right. staff. Usually they're just huddled together, but this time we've had to. So it, it costs a lot more. And plus they got a lot of testing. And this this is back, you know, when testing wasn't as readily available. Do you have a lot of Israeli friends who are living abroad who are now thinking about moving back here? Yeah, or have already moved back. Why are they moving back? Um, I think initially they moved back because you know, it felt the world from being very global was suddenly becoming very nationalistic and countries were closing the borders and changing the rules and making rules separately for their own nationals versus visitors versus tourists, certainly. And I think it kind of makes you feel like a second or third class citizen. And that suddenly became, feels a little uncomfortable when that starts to happen. Plus medical care. I mean, and anything that happens, you want to be home. You want to be close to your parents, to your you know, siblings. If you have your friends, even if you can't see them, you kind of know they're there. And also we do have great medical uh, care. But how much of it also is, like I'm seeing this in the U.S. If you're a tech engineer at a big 
tech company in Silicon Valley, suddenly you realize, like that editor, you're like, you're like, well, wait a minute, I can do my job from anywhere, and I'd rather raise my kids in Asheville, North Carolina, and I can still work for one of the big tech companies in Silicon Valley, and I get the best of both worlds. It doesn't affect my career, and I get to live in a community that's aligned with my values, where I want to raise my kids. And I think there's a lot of Israelis globally, I've seen this in the tech space, who've said, oh, wait, I get to do this cool job and move back to and Israel? And move back here, and raise my kids here, and enjoy the lifestyle that I have here, be close to my parents, my friends, and there's a lot of that. We do really see each other. We do see each other as a family. Like, you will not go a week without seeing your parents. I mean, it's just not happening, no matter where they live and where you live in the country. Right. It's not like we go back home on Thanksgiving and, right. you know, right. for, for New Year's. No, 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 in, in Israel, <laughs> every weekend is Thanksgiving. Yeah. Okay, this is good. That's our show for today. I hope you enjoyed our on-location podcast recording. And most importantly, I hope this episode will help you look forward to our own return to post-corona life. If you want to follow Amit, Yonatan, Ya'ara, or Donna, we'll post their social links in the episode notes. Be sure to check those out. And if you have questions or ideas for future episodes, tweet at me, Dan Sinor. Today's episode is produced by Alan Benatar. Until next time, I'm your host, Dan Sinor.